Good morning, North Haven. It is my immense pleasure and privilege to be back here with you today. When I was here last time, I ended up talking with Adam and said, I look forward to the next time I get to be here. And I'm deeply grateful to be here, although I wish it was under very different circumstances. Uh, so, Adam, thank you for the opportunity, and I hope. Uh, as Don said, my name is Tim Magnuson. I've known Adam for, I, I could, it's probably been 10 years now. It feels like two or three because time flies and we don't see each other as often as we would like. And then also, there's a deep history that we have and a connection that whenever we've kind of been apart and get back together, it feels like things pick up. So um, when you say I knew at the last church, I'm still at that other church right now up in Brooklyn Park. Uh, I'm still closely following what he does here. I like seeing the different things that are happening and, and what's going on here. When the last time I, I was speaking with somebody, and I love coming here because it does feel partly like coming home. There's something about a community like this that has been so deeply ingrained and entrenched in an area like this for so long that it's become a part of the community. And seeing things that you're doing like Trunk or Treat really do have an impact. Uh, we're going to be talking about children today, and in a couple minutes I'll be showing a slide of three of my kids. And the thing that I have noticed about them is that they remember little things. Uh, this past winter, we went down to Disney World with my in-laws, and we, we got to go to the beach for a while, and we stayed at one of their um, cabins that Disney World has, and we were in line on the ferry going to, to the actual Magic Kingdom Park, and we were talking with my mother-in-law, and my mother-in-law reads everything. I mean, every email she gets, every piece of mail, she reads it. Thousands of emails a week, every email. And she was reading about Disney World, and she said the thing that she remembers about reading about Disney World is that parents will spend years planning the perfect trip. And when kids afterwards are asked, what do they love most about the trip? It wasn't meeting Mickey. It wasn't riding Space Mountain. It was the pool at the hotel. <laughs> That's what Trunk or Treat is. Trunk or Treat is Disney World, but the kids will remember the little details that you add into it. The kids will remember little tidbits that on your trunk you had an extra decal or you put a sticker or you had a tattoo on your palm that went with your costume. And I say that not to guilt anybody, but rather because the little things add up and children catch on to it. So I'd like to encourage you as somebody who does have three young kids, it does matter. I didn't think it did because I'm a cynic, but my children have proved me wrong time and time again. So as we start today, we are going to be talking about uh, episode three of The Chosen, and as, as Don said, and as, um, I, I'm sorry, the other, the other guy who's up here speaking is that these, there is a significant amount of freedom and license that is taken with this series. But what it also does is it also gives us a potential window into what was happening, into the attitude and perspective that Jesus and his followers and the people around him might have had. And so in that regard, I look at it kind of similar to any translation or commentary or any other form of preaching that you might hear is, I honestly don't know every, if everything that I'm going to say to you today is going to be absolutely true. I certainly hope it is. But this is one medium, one perspective on what it could have been. And the goal is not to get the absolute, sorry, the goal is to get the absolute best picture of who Jesus is, but the goal is to do that by getting lots and lots of different perspectives and comparing them to each other and seeing what happens. So as we go through this, I want to keep in mind that, once again, these are always in, open to interpretation 
an expectation, but I want to take the principle of what we're going to see in the video clip in a couple of minutes here and run with it and, and show how this can fit into a larger paradigm. So before we start, I actually want to show a slide of my kids, because uh, I think this will help to explain where we're going at today. So yes, <laughs> I hear laughter. Yes, my kids are funny. My kids are interesting. Uh, as you can see, so starting from the left to right, they go from youngest to oldest. On the left is going to be Jonas. He's going to be eight in less than a month. Um, he continually, continually asks our Amazon smart device how many days until his birthday, and he gets it down, tries to get it down to the minute or second before the clock strikes midnight on his birthday. He is all about turning eight, can't wait for it. In the middle is my middle child, uh, Eleanor. She's five and a half, and she is incredibly cute, but also very much an assassin or a ninja. Um, she will get in, she will cause trouble, and then sneak out and be cute about it, and nobody else is the wiser. And then on the far right is going to be Isaiah. He is making a goofy face because that's the one moment of the day that he is not angry at somebody or something. You laugh, I'm not. Because his favorite phrase now is stupid blank. And you can fill it in with stupid mommy, stupid daddy, stupid chair, stupid table, stupid cereal, stupid dog. You name it, they're stupid. Um, and he's gotten really good at throwing stuff. So we might have a future baseball player on our hands. And if not, I will be needing somebody to replace my windows shortly. But these are my children. These are the ones that God has given me, gifted to me, and this is what I am entrusted with. And so by keeping these three children in mind for myself, this helps me understand the episode that has portrayed to us and how Jesus can be talking to these different people. So we're going to watch the video next, uh, and after that, then we're going to actually dive into the message and how I think it applies to where we are today. You want things to be fair. When someone wrongs you, you want to right it. And you know who else loves justice? But what does the Lord say in the law of Moses? about justice and vengeance. Vengeance is mine. Yes, very good. Very good. Boys, pay attention. She doesn't even go to Torah class, huh? <laughs> the Lord loves justice. But maybe it is not ours to handle. And God says he will have compassion on his people when... What? Let's see if someone who studies this at school is learning, huh? When their strength is gone? Yes, very good. So, maybe we let God provide the justice. Hmm? Maybe we handle these things in a different way. Not trying to be the strongest all the time. Even Messiah? You will have to see. But do not expect Messiah to arrive in Jerusalem on a tall horse carrying weapons. And he will be most pleased with those of you who are the peacemakers. This is my reason for being here. I still don't understand. What is your reason for being here? I'm telling you this because even though you are children and the elders in your life have lived longer, many times adults need the faith of children. And if you hold on to this faith really tightly, someday soon, 
you will understand all of what I am saying to you. But you ask an important question, Abigail. What is my reason for being here? And the answer is for all of you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah. Isaiah. I have loved spending this time with you. You are all so very special. And I hope that my next students ask the same questions you do and that they listen to my answers. But I suspect they do not have the understanding you do. I love that clip. Specifically the passage from Isaiah, but that is, to me, that is just a, an immensely powerful scene. And I want to go back. There's actually going to be two of those quotes that we jump off of today. The first one, I'm going to, I'm going to go back. I want you to, I'm going to read this to you, and I want you to listen to what Jesus says. To the children, he says, I am telling you this because even though you are children and the elders in your life have lived longer, many times adults need the faith of children. And if you hold on to this faith really tightly, Someday soon you will understand all of what I am saying to you. The first point I want to get to is our dependence. Our dependence upon God is going to be of paramount, utmost importance. Now, the last time I was here, I wrapped up by saying that I believe that the term faith can also be used, uh, you can substitute allegiance for that. So I want to go back, I want to read that same passage, but I want to change faith for allegiance and see how this sounds. So he says, I am telling you this because even though you are children and the elders in your life have lived longer, many times adults need the allegiance of children. And if you hold on to this allegiance really tightly, someday soon you will understand all of what I am saying to you. I think that blind allegiance perfectly sums up what children are capable of. That in spite of whatever problems they face, difficulties they have, all the times that I have lashed out at my children in moments of frustration and anger, they still end the night with goodnight hugs, goodnight kisses, and love you dads. They have a blind allegiance that many adults would not even fathom having. Fathom having. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. And I want to point out the three examples from my children of how their, their dependence and kind of how their allegiance looks at these things. So look at dependence. First off, Jonas. Jonas, my almost eight-year-old, he is incredibly independent. I mean, he is, oh, he, is, he is just so independent. I was impressed this last week as almost eight-year-olds, he didn't want a normal lunch. He made himself scrambled eggs for lunch. He makes himself breakfast almost every single day. He can read at a fourth grade level as an eight-year-old. Like he, does, he buys a book and he'll read it in 20 minutes because he just can't wait to figure out the ending to it. He's building his Legos, and most kids love Legos, and Jonas is no exception to that, but he is just all gung-ho on this. He wants to do everything himself exactly as he thinks it should be done. He's also my little inventor. 
So we have an inventing drawer for him at our house. And in there, um, everything that you would throw in the garbage goes in the inventing drawer. Everything but food. I'm not I mean, everything but food. It is an atrocity of a drawer. But he uses it. He pulls it again. This week he made himself a snack hat. Do you know what that is? Good. I didn't either. He took a regular hat and wanted to put a bucket underneath it so he could carry his snacks with him. So he figured out a way to do it, and we made him a snack hat. And it was perfect. I don't, still don't understand the point, but he loves it, and he wears it, and he may have hit himself in the face once or twice with the bucket, but he did it. He's very independent that way. But this is also a problem for him because in the moments when he is not able to do something he thinks he should be able to do, when he actually needs to have dependence on somebody else, it causes him frustration. In those moments this week when he couldn't figure out something he needed, he lashed out. He broke the Lego set that he had been working on for the better part of an hour. He snapped the new crayons that he had gotten for school. He had lashed out at my wife and I over very, very small things that he thought he should be able to do but just couldn't handle in the moment. And see, I don't want to pick on Jonas because I think we're all in that position as well. See, Jonas knows that we're always there for him, much like we know that God is always there for us, but do we really want to have God come through for us every single time? Sadly, the answer for me at least is no. I'd like to be able to do it myself. Eleanor, my middle child, her level of dependence and independence varies greatly. Some things she can do, like get dressed and get some cereal. Other things, she needs lots of help. So she can get her breakfast in that she can get out the milk and she can get the box of cereal, but she can't pour either right now. If she wants breakfast before we're able to get it for her, it's dry cereal because she can't pour either one into a bowl and not have it spill everywhere. But she's also independent enough where she can get dressed on her own. She can read on her own. She's able to follow basic directions on her own. And her intermediate dependency causes problems when either I do something that she thinks she can do, like the answer to a simple math problem, or when I don't do things that she should be able to do but doesn't want to, like close the closet door at night to keep the scary monsters out. See, Eleanor knows that we are always there for her, but she doesn't always remember or know that she needs us for that. Some of us are in that position where we know that God is always there, but we don't realize the moments where God is actually supposed to step in and take over for us. And then finally, Isaiah. Isaiah is dependent upon us for almost everything. And the problem with this is that he thinks he should be able to do lots of things, but he is just not physically capable of doing it. Some days he might be able to get himself dressed, but that's about it. He can't get himself breakfast. He can't do any of those other things. And his struggle comes in with seeing his big brother and big sister, those who are more advanced and more mature than him, running when he's walking. And for us, his frustration comes in knowing that he needs mom and dad, but getting angry that he just doesn't want to use us. And some of us are there as well. as We know that there are situations where we need God, but we're just frustrated that we can't handle it as we are. The levels vary, but we're all in one of those categories at some point. And I point this out not because I think that my children are the paragon of excellence or because they're the best examples out, but because they fit my life. They are my children, and I see them in that video. And in this situation, we're either like Jonas, where we struggle with dependence on God because we feel like we don't have the ability or aren't mature enough to do our own stuff. Or maybe we're like Eleanor, where we know we can count on God, but that's only for the big and scary things like monsters in the closet. Or maybe we're like Isaiah, who 
really doesn't know that God should be trusted because we, why can't we do this on our own? At the end of the day, we know that he can be trusted, but should we trust him is a completely different question, which is where I have my first principle. The first principle is that dependence upon God, not independence from God, is a sign of maturity. All the great heroes of faith have done this. I'm going to show you two places where this is echoed in Scripture. Um, as a quick tangent, uh, the first passage we have is from Joshua chapter 1. I was in the men's room today, and there's actually a plaque in there from Joshua 1 chapter 9. And I love it. Uh, that, that is a great passage. Uh, a little tidbit about me is there was a time when I was in college where I did uh, different cleaning jobs at different people's houses. And the most common religious or kind of spiritual artifact, um, um, plaque, display, whatever, that I saw at people's houses was the, the poem Footprints. Right? Whenever, you know, I, there was only one set of footprints, I carried you. The second most common was Joshua 1.9, right? I love that passage, but I'm actually going to use this one from slightly earlier in the, in the chapter. Joshua 1, verses 5 and 6. This is God talking to Joshua, and he says to Joshua, Now no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give to them. And the reason I love this one slightly more than Joshua 1.9 is because God says, as I was with Moses. Moses. The guy who saw the burning bush and led the people out of Egypt and passed through the Red Sea and received the Ten Commandments. This is Mount Rushmore of faith right here. And God says, as I was with him, I will be with you. And that is the same God that is asking for us to have our dependence upon him. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. This is what God is asking us to step into. He's telling us to Joshua. The second passage is going to be from Isaiah 43. And this is a different passage. It's being written after Israel has gone into exile for their rebellion against God. And God comes back. He speaks through a prophet Isaiah. And he says to the people who have come back, uh, this, this is going to be up on the screen next. If we can get there, please. Cool. Um, but now this is what God says, what Yahweh says. This is what God, God, the God who created you, Jacob, and he who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The three places he specifically calls out, when you pass through the waters, a reference back to the Red Sea. When you pass through the rivers, a reference back to the Jordan when they cross into the land for the first time. And then finally, when you pass through the fires, you will not be burned, a reference to Daniel's three friends. In each of those moments, God is with us. He's asking for our dependence on him to trust us through the moments that seem insurmountable. God is the God who has been, who is, and who forever will be. He is asking for us to walk with him in dependence at each moment. Now going on to the next aspect, we're going to be talking next about questions. And so as one of the slides was said, as I said on the stage earlier this morning, uh, the passage, or the quote that comes from the video is this. Jesus says to the children, I hope that my next students will ask the same questions you do and that they will listen, and that they listen to my answers. See, the children in this episode are full of questions. So I watched the episode, if you did too, you'll notice that they ask lots of questions. On the next slide, I actually have all of the different questions written down. 
And we're going to go through them because I think they're really, really telling. So the first one is, so they go through, what are you doing here? What is that? Where are you from? What else will you build? Are you dangerous? How much longer are you going to stay here? Do you have a home? Do you have friends? What's your favorite fruit, food? Why don't you have a home? Are you a carpenter? What's that wood for? How do you make money? Why don't you live in a house? You're a teacher, no? Even Messiah? What other job? Where were you yesterday? Is she, Mary, your friend? Did you build something for her? For Mary. Do, do they know you? What if they don't like you? What is your reason for being here? And I want to point out, do you notice the nature of every single one of these questions? They're all directed outwards to who Jesus is and what he's doing. Their questions are designed to get to know Jesus more, not serve their own interests. There's not a single question in the whole episode that the children ask that is directed to them or for them. And this is the posture that I think we need to take to God when we come and approach him. Our questions and inquiries to him will point us to what we need to learn about him. They will deepen our understanding for him and develop our relationship with him. Which brings me to my second principle, is that the nature of our questions will reveal the desire of our relationships. Have you ever had a friend who's always kind of hits you up and whenever you're talking like, oh, uh, so, get that bonus yet? Because uh, I, I just found this really great deal on uh, this thing. You should help me with it. Those are weird. There's a feeling of I'm being used for something. What can this other person get out of it? But every question the child asks is directed to get to know Jesus more and more. It has nothing to do with what they will get out of it. And I bring this up because throughout Scripture, we have lots and lots of points where we're actually pointing to people throughout faith, the people of faith, when they actually have questions for God and their questions lead them into deeper relationships. Oftentimes, on the surface, these questions look very difficult, maybe, maybe actually very inward-focused. Some examples of that are, are Abraham, when he's asking God about how God promised that he'll have children, or about the relationship with Lot when he's in Sodom and Gomorrah. David, if you read any of the Psalms of David, chances are one of them is going to have some sort of question where David is in trouble and wants God's help. Jeremiah went to God repeatedly because he was facing hostility while he was ministering to the people before their exile. Ezekiel constantly went to God asking, why are you having me do this? Please don't have me do this while he was ministering in exile. The most notable being when God told him he was going to cook his food over, over human excrement. It's a bad place to be. I understand his question deeply. Finally, Paul. Paul asked God to remove his thorn in the flesh numerous times. And when we realize that these questions are only asked out of a relationship with God that has been deeply developed, a place where people know that they can trust God and depend on him for where they are at. The questions that they ask, the relationships that they have with God, push them deeper into a relationship with God. These questions may be self-serving on the surface, but they're designed entirely for our understanding that questions that look like that are developed out of a deep communication and relationship with God. The principle from the children is the questions we ask of God are to get to get to know him better. That's what it means to have childlike questions and childlike faith, is to probe into who God is, to ask who he is and what he is doing. Where are you going? Why did you do that? How long will you be here? Do they like you? They are not self-serving, but rather him-serving, him-seeking. Now, going back to each of my three children as the example, Jonas asks great questions. He knows things. He can build stuff. He's re he'll read a book, and then he'll ask, Dad, do you have any idea what the tallest penguin in the world is? 
I have no clue, and he'll tell me. I think it's the emperor, but I don't remember for sure. He'll ask, do you know how much the blue whale weighs? Do you know why this is the case? What's going on here? What's happening? And he does it because he wants to understand where we're at. He'll come and visit me. I work from home right now, but he'll come down, he'll visit me at my office, at my desk. He'll ask what I'm doing. Why am I doing it? Why are you doing that? What, what is needed for this? He wants to get And by doing that, he and I have a different relationship because he understands me and I'm beginning to understand him as well. Eleanor, on the other hand, is very different. Her questions are all across the board. She'll ask really good questions like, Dad, what can we do to make Mom happy? That's a great question. Usually it's dishes. The other time, then the next minute she'll turn on, she'll ask, Dad, um... Can I watch a show? Did you do your schoolwork? No. Clearly not. She's just looking for the magic bullet. So some questions are probing and trying to deepen, how do I make somebody happy? How do I understand them? And other ones are just simply, how do I get what I want easiest? As she has learned to develop her questions, her personality has started to shine through more, and we relate to her better because we understand what's making her tick. But then we get to Isaiah. Isaiah, my three-and-a-half-year-old, and his most common questions are either, can you have a pack of fruit snacks or can you have a fruit pouch? And uh, usually the answer is going to be no. He gets them for a snack occasionally here or there. But, but what he wants is he wants to get the here and the now. He's only concerned with satisfying his current needs. Rather than understanding that fruit snacks come after breakfast, he thinks that's a vital part of it. See, he doesn't realize that fruit snacks are, are that treat, that reward after something, right? That a good breakfast is made up of fruity pebbles and not fruit snacks, right? Good. You laughed at that. I was worried. See, I use these examples because each of these, my kids have different questions, and the way that I relate to them is really heavily dependent upon the questions that they ask. I can go different places in, in my conversation in relationship with Jonas as my eight-year-old because he gets what's going on. I can't do that with my three-and-a-half-year-old. Now, if Jonas came to me tomorrow at 7.30 in the morning without having any breakfast and said, Dad, can I have fruit snacks? No. But if he did that repeatedly day after day after day after day, I would be incredibly frustrated and feel like I failed in some way. The flip side of that is if my three-and-a-half-year-old came to me and said, Dad, no fruit snacks till, till broccoli, and breakfast, and protein, and exercise, then fruit snacks, I'd probably pass out. Because each of my children has a different place in their maturity level, and that's what's expected of them. And I bring that up because I think, ultimately, God understands that for each of us. That our dependency upon Him, coupled with our relationship and our, our, our probing, our questioning of who, who He is and how we relate to Him, will lead us into a deeper, better walk with who he is. See, as a perfect father, he understands where we're at and what we're trying to get to. And he understands each of those moments. Which brings me to my third principle here, is that Christian maturity is going to be a dual act of deepening our dependence and directing our heart outward towards God. I'm going to go uh, to a passage from Paul next. But, but there is a tension that exists in each of us on how we would navigate that. So we're going to go in 1 Corinthians here. Uh, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. 
Therefore, I do not run like somebody who runs aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. See, Paul is saying here that that life is a constant battle of finding the proper path in our faith. He realized that he's never going to achieve perfection, but he is constantly in a training regimen to get there. I realize that as we conclude, this is not the kind of rah, rah, get out, take the world by storm ending that maybe we want. And sadly, I think that I'm just not capable of that for you. Because when I look at it, I think that this life is incredibly hard. Hardest most for Christians, because of all things, we have a legitimate enemy that is out there. But I also know that there is an immense sense of hope and faith that goes with this. So I want to end, actually, on, on a bit of a high note, but meh, I think it's a high note, but I'm also quirky. You know, it might not be for everybody. But we're going to end in chapter 11. And before we get there, I want to bring up just this little, little tidbit. So yeah, I love trivia, facts, details. And there's this thing, this literary device that was used back in ancient times, and it's kind of become a common thing now, but it's called the epithet. Epithet is basically just a, a replacement of a name for somebody. So I'm going to give you a couple famous epithets throughout time, and I want to see if anybody can understand or guess who this is going to be. Uh, the first epithet is the great Bambino. Babe Ruth. Yes, great. Uh, 007. James Bond, good. Uh, the great one. Muhammad Ali, yep. Um, then we've got uh, the boss. All right. Oh, I heard lots of people don't know who Bruce Springsteen is. Okay, we're in church. I get it, I get it. Uh, the king, Elvis. This one's a little bit of throwback from history. The bard, Shakespeare. Yep. Uh, and then finally, this one's this was a gimme, but my son loved it. Honest Abe, Lincoln. See, the epithet is a way that somebody is known throughout time. It replaces who they are with with maybe a, a slightly more colorful or a better description of who they are as a person. So as we go to Hebrews 11, it's a long passage, but I want to read it because it gives the context. So Hebrews 11, starting in verse 32, and I'm reading out of the message because I like the way he ties everything together. So he says in verse 32, starting, so I could go on and on, but I've run out of time. That's, that's the, the Bible, not me, sorry. Uh, there are so many more I could talk about. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Through acts of faith, they toppled kingdoms and made justice work. They took the promises for themselves. They were protected from lions, fires, and sword thrusts, turned disadvantage to advantage, won battles, routed alien armies. Women received their loved ones back from the dead. There were those who, under torture, refused to give in and go free, preferring something better, the resurrection. Others braved abuse and whips, and yes, chains and dungeons. We have stories of those who were stoned, sawn in two, murdered in cold blood. Stories of vagrants wandering the earth in animal skins. Homeless, friendless, powerless. The world didn't deserve them. Making their way as best they could on the cruel edges of the world, not one of these people, even though their lives of faith were exemplary, got their hands on what was promised. God had a better plan for us, that their faith and our faith would come together to make one complete whole. Their lives of faith not complete apart from ours. And if you caught it, the epithet in there was, of whom the world was not worthy. 
That replaced all the nameless group that he talked about, those who were killed in cold, cold blood, sawn in half, stoned, imprisoned, tortured. Every one of them, he says, of whom the world was not worthy. That's how I want to end today. This is what living a full life dependent upon God, I mean, fully probing into who God is and fully allegiant to King Jesus looks like. So as we leave here, I want us all to go forth and be ready to live that type of life, to be committed to living the type of life that is worthy of King Jesus, people allegiant to him in all things, dependent upon him in all things, probing, deepening our relationship with him in all things, so that when our time comes, it'll be said of each and every one of us, the world didn't deserve him. The world didn't deserve her. That's what being allegiant, dependent, relational with King Jesus looks like, is living a life that the world doesn't deserve us. I want to give you blessings and peace and thanks for being here. We're going to pray and then we're going to be done. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the ability to be here and to share with these great people, this great community that you have established here at North Haven. I pray for Pastor Adam that you would give him health and healing, that he would recover and return back to these people quickly. I thank you once again for this opportunity. I pray that what I have done and said would bring honor and glory to you, that we would be people who look at you as people that we need and are dependent upon you, that our relationship is only driven as far as we are willing to take it with you, and that ultimately that we would be people who are allegiant to King Jesus and the message and vision that he has for us as followers. Lord, I thank you for everybody here. I pray that you would bless them, be with them, protect them, keep them safe, and that your face and your countenance and your blessings will shine on them through this week. Please bring them back next week, ready for, for another week of discipline, of teaching, of discipleship, and of becoming people that are, of whom the world is not worthy. So Lord, thank you for this chance. Please be with us all as we go. Amen. God bless. Thank you, and have a nice week.